All right, why don't you all bow with me and let's uh, commit this time to God. Father, hopefully we are set up right now to receive your word, what you have to say to us. Hopefully our hearts have been drawn to you and our minds a bit sharpened and ready to uh, receive what you have to say to us. God, we believe that the Bible is your inspired word to us, that it's our truth source as followers of Jesus. So as we begin this study out of a small but power-packed book, that book of Second Peter, we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, that we'd understand it rightly, and that, Father, most pointedly, that we might apply this dil- diligently and courageously to our lives. Help us to understand what we're going to talk about today, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, let me ask you, if you knew that your time was short, and I mean very short, here on planet Earth, well, what would you say to those around you? I mean, if you knew for certain that you had just weeks or months to live, what handful of truisms would you want to communicate to your friends and your family? It's a good question to consider, because I think we'd all agree that if someone whom we respected that had great wisdom and had lived a, a very well, well-lived life were to leave us some parting words, we'd perk up, right? I mean, we'd listen, and we know that we'd be much better for it. Uh, parting words are that powerful. They're the words of those who are about to die, and when people say them to us, and it's somebody that we respect, they are words that we want to live by. And if you can grab onto this idea today, and I think we all can, then you're ready to dive into the New Testament book of Second Peter. Because look at what the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, tells us very clearly in this letter. Look at Second Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Look up here on the screen. He says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. You know, it's interesting, folks. Bible experts agree that what Peter is saying here is that the resurrected and now ascended into heaven Jesus made it crystal clear to Peter, most likely through an actual appearance or through some kind of clear message, that his days were coming to an end that he was going to die, and like die real soon. And so Peter, knowing that his soul was going to be with God in heaven, describes this as the putting off of my body, just losing my body, but my soul is going to be with God. What does he do? He writes a letter. Don't miss this. He thinks of his fellow believers that he wrote to a few years earlier, believers who were living in the outpost areas of Northwest Asia Minor, areas that we read about in Peter's first letter that have names like Pontus, and Cappadocia and Bithynia that like we have no clue many of us today because we've never been to the Middle East what they were what they look like but it'd be kind of akin to Prescott or Williams or Yuma for us today you know kind of outpost areas from the greater Phoenix area and Peter is writing to these relatively young churches some things that he hopes that they will never forget Things that he hopes, as he says, that they will be able to at any time recall life-giving things. Don't miss this. Things that only come to mind when one is about to die. And as you read this short letter, folks, I mean, it's only three chapters long, 399 words to be precise, you walk away with no less than eight key challenges. Eight things that Peter wants followers of Jesus to know. Eight challenges that have survived the last 2,000 years and have proven to be nothing but life-giving to those who will listen to them and act on them. And that's what this letter is all about. Words to live by, eight challenges from a man about to die. 
And as a quick side note, one of the things that scholars point out about Second Peter, and this is interesting, is how different in style it is from his first letter, the one that we studied here last year at SBC. In other words, the language and verbiage of First Peter in the original Greek that he wrote in is polished and cultured and dignified with lots of connecting particles and phrases. While Second Peter here in the Greek is more cumbersome and grandiose and missing all those refined connecting phrases. I like how one scholar says it. He says, and I quote, it's like Baroque art, almost vulgar in its pretentiousness and effusiveness. It's a much more rustically written letter. And though some argue that this means Peter then couldn't have written this second letter, others then counter by saying, well, no, it says in the end of 1 Peter 5 that that he used a scribe, or at least it hints to that. What I think actually is going on here is that Peter's just in a very different frame of mind when he writes this second letter to us. In other words, it's the exact same author, the same man, but the circumstances around his life and the life of those he is writing to have changed drastically. And so just like you would write a letter very different if, my gosh, you knew we were going to die and it was going to be the last letter you were going to write, and if the people you were writing to, though the same audience had much different circumstances, that letter would sound and look a lot different. I mean, during the first letter, picture Peter sitting back, relaxed, composing his thoughts, probably editing them a few times. But in the second letter, the heat is now turned up. That's what you need to know. It's more intense He knows that his time on earth is ending soon. And the churches that he's writing to, as we're going to see, have this influx of all this false teaching. And so with typical Peter-like intensity and passion, he's writing some very challenging string of truths that he he hopes he'll never forget. It's truly an amazing little letter, different in style, because the circumstances have changed both for Peter and for his audience. So, I want you to picture Peter in Rome. That's where tradition tells us he died. Having gotten news from Jesus that his time is near and filled with a few parting thoughts that he wants all Christ followers now to know at the leading of the Holy Spirit, he sits down to write this letter. And so here's the first challenge that he gives to you and me. And that is to rely on his, God's movement in your life, not your own. Rely on his movement in your life, God's movement, not your own. Now, folks, here's where we need to start. Most of the time, when you read a New Testament letter or hear a sermon series on them, you quickly drive by the opening words, right? I mean, give me a head nod that that's the way that most of us function. I mean, they all seem to be similar, these greetings in the New Testament and kind of everyday first century greetings. And so we usually think something like this. Tell me if this isn't true. We usually think, yeah, yeah, I've heard this stuff before. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's next? That's the way that most of us respond when we're reading the Bible. That's the way that most preachers actually uh, utilize the opening words of these New Testament letters. They just drive right by them. But I tell you what, we don't want to do that with Peter's second letter here. Not at all. Because though the greeting might seem similar to us and the other ones, it, it's really not. And, and there's some life-giving things here. In fact, it's really his opening challenge to us. So I want you to open to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is where we're going to park the rest of our time this morning. We're only going to look at two verses that comprise this first challenge that Peter gives us. Second Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Look up here on the screen or look down at your own Bible. It says, Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And then that very common New Testament greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, folks, the key phrase that occurs here that doesn't occur in any of the opening words of all the other 20-plus New Testament letters is that phrase, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what I need you and I to wrestle with right now is what do you think Peter means by the righteousness of God and Jesus? That's like a really important phrase if we're going to understand the challenge here. The righteousness of God and Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, saw this as referring to a forensic or imputed righteousness. You know, the fact that through Christ's forgiving work on the cross, God has declared believers now righteous in His sight. The fact that our sin kept us from God, so Christ died on the cross for our sins, and now we are righteous in the sight of God, at least positionally speaking. God has imputed righteousness to us. Luther saw this as referring to that. And though it is true that Paul talks like all the time in Romans about this kind of righteousness, it doesn't at all fit the context of First and Second Peter, so most Bible experts don't opt for this interpretation. And so as a result, what others have suggested is that what Peter is getting at here is an ethical righteousness. You know, the fact that God has entered our lives and as a result, we're now to live righteous lives. So the righteousness of God here is that righteousness of who God is and we're now to imitate that. So Luther saw it as an imputed righteousness and others see it as kind of an imitative righteousness. And though this does fit the context a little bit better, because like First Peter talks about holiness and doing the right thing and things like that, and we're going to see some ethical overtones in this letter as well, I'm not sure this is what Peter means in this opening phrase. Because you see, there's a third option, which keeps the emphasis, by the way, on God's righteousness, not our imputed righteousness or imitative righteousness. And it simply posits that God has moved righteously in our lives. That He has blessed us greatly on the spiritual and relational level. That His righteousness toward us has brought with it some incredible changes to our lives. And so Peter is beginning this short but power-packed letter by highlighting some of the things involved in the righteousness of God toward us. In other words, God has been righteous toward us. And Peter wants us to recognize and rely on this righteousness, not on all the other things that we're tempted to rely on in our everyday world. And so the righteousness of God here, please see, becomes the righteous things that God has done toward us that we are now to lean on and rely on for our core sense of personhood. And I think this makes sense. In fact, when you look closely at these two opening verses here, you notice no less than three key things that God's righteousness, Peter tells us, has brought to our life. Three things that flow right out of His righteousness toward you and me. Look up here on the screen. First, He says that because of God's righteousness, we now have a Savior. Amen? We now have a Savior. It says in verse 1, the righteousness of our God, and here it is, Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, that word Savior simply means somebody who rescues one, who delivers somebody from something. And obviously in the context of the New Testament and of Second Peter here, it's Jesus that saved us from our sin, right? The fact that we were once completely lost in our sins without God and without hope in our lives. And that because Jesus come to, came to save us, we now can know God fully and freely, at least as fully as you can know God this side of heaven. 
Peter would say it this way in his first letter as confirmation that this is probably what he's getting at. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He put us to death in the flesh, but made us alive in the Spirit. So how has God been righteous to you and to me? How has He moved unmistakably in our lives? By sending us a Savior. Our sins are forgiven. We can truly know God. And yet it doesn't stop there. Notice a second key thing that Peter tells us about God's righteous movement in our lives. And that is, he says, and this is so cool, that we now have a faith identical to that of his of the original followers. And don't let this drive by you. We now have a faith, you and I do, that is identical to that of Jesus' original followers. Peter says there in verse 1 that those who have taken God up on His righteous movement in our lives through Jesus have now obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Do you see that there? Obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. It's fascinating. That phrase there, equal standing, is one Greek word in the original text that Peter wrote in. It's the Greek word isotomos. And it literally means of the same kind or value. It carries with it this idea of equality, of something being just as valuable and worthy as what you're comparing it to. And so obviously, in this context, it's referring to the original apostles' faith, right? That's what Peter means when he says, our faith, him and the other apostles. And so Peter is saying that the faith that you and I have in God and in Jesus is just as powerful, just as real, just as grace-releasing as that of Peter, James, John, Paul, Matthew, and all the other original followers. I mean, let that sink in a moment, folks. I can't tell you how many times I know and have sensed that Christians think this way. We think, yeah, 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 I got a faith today. But you know, gosh, when I read about all those amazing stories in the New Testament and how faithful Peter, James, and John, and Luke, and Matthew, and all these guys were, I just wish I could have a faith like theirs. You ever caught yourself saying something like that? I have. And I'm a pastor for crying out loud. And I find myself saying that sometimes. And what Peter is saying is he's come along saying, guess what? You got a faith just like them. The faith that you have in Jesus is the same Jesus. You're made of the same stuff that they are. Same faith. It's of equal standing as theirs. And so think of all the things that they experienced from knowing Jesus. He's saying you can experience the same. Peace, purpose, constant presence felt by God, hope of eternal life, serving Him with your spiritual gifts, sharing your faith with the lost, seeing your kids grow up to walk with God, learning to persevere and hang in there during tough times, seeing God hear and answer your prayers. I mean, all the things that came part and parcel of their faith, He's saying can be part and parcel of yours. I love how one Bible expert puts it. This is so cool. He says, and I quote, there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Amen? No second-class citizens. I mean, we left Britain 200 years ago to get away from a class society, and guess what? We've developed our own. Have you ever noticed that here in America? We're not as bad as it was 200 years ago, but the reality is is that we still have different graduated levels of how we view people in our culture today. And the point is is that God doesn't know any of that. God says you're all on equal footing, you're all on equal ground, equal faith as far as your relationship with me, if you have it and if you trust in Him. Don't miss, because of God's movement built upon His righteousness, we now have a faith like that of Jesus' original followers, complete with all the benefits and blessings that come with it. So you got salvation from sin, you got a faith like that of His original followers, and if this were not enough, notice a third thing 
just in the first two verses here, that is a result of God's righteous movement in our lives. And they are grace and peace. Grace and peace. In other words, don't overlook, folks, that often repeated opening statement that almost every New Testament writer uses, but Peter here links to God's righteous movement, and that is when he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Grace is simply God's unmerited favor toward you. The fact you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, but He decided to smile on you anyways and send Jesus for you. And peace, what one author calls a total well-being, what the Old Testament calls that shalom kind of peace, that's what He gives you. And what almost all New Testament writers agree upon is that this grace and peace, now get this, is the kind that transcends circumstances. It simply means that whatever you might be going through, job loss, financial troubles, kids rebelling, a difficult marriage, friendships that go south, that God still has promised you grace and peace when you need it the most. And so add it all up, folks. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteous movement toward us in and through our lives. And what is this righteous movement? Well, He's provided for you a Savior He's given you a faith like that of the original followers. He has blessed you with grace and peace that transcends all of your circumstances and troubles. This is why I encapsulate Peter's first challenge to us here this way. Rely on his movement in your life. Now do you see what we mean by that? Not your own. I mean, what a challenge this is to you and I. Here's what I want to do in our time remaining here today. I want us to um, to get down to brass tacks, as if we already haven't been, and apply this a bit more pointedly to our lives, okay? And, and to do this, as we wrestle with this, what I want you to do is I want you to think right now, right where you sit, of all the things that you rely on today for your sense of security and well-being. Start to make a list in your mind. In other words, I want you to do a mental inventory right now of all the things in and around you that make up your sense of self that contribute to your core security. These are things that you have in your life that tell you that you're okay, that you can rest somewhat secure in who you are in this world. These are things that we rely on to tell us that we're good, that we're okay. Okay, So I want you to start thinking of that list. And I thought about maybe calling somebody up to share their list with us, but I thought, no, even if I did that with an elder, they'd probably freak out, you know, and and, and be all nervous or whatever. So I thought, here's what I will do. I'm going to share with you just a little bit of my list, because if I don't miss my guess, maybe my list might be similar to your list. And even if it's not, then what you can do is uh, is just bounce off of mine and make your own list, okay? So so here it is. I don't know about you, but but when I do this, here's the kind of list I come up with. First is I think of my personality, My personality gives me a sense of well-being. And some of you are thinking right now, really, your personality gives you a sense of well-being? Wow, I'm going to pray for you or something like that. I mean, that's kind of what you're thinking right now. But but it's true. I, I would challenge you that all of us, even if you don't have a very good personality, tend to rely on the strength of our personality to tell us that we're okay to get by in life. I got a couple folders here that I, I brought out of my super secret Jamie Rasmussen file in my, um, in my desk at, at the church here. Don't worry, it's locked. And uh, what this is, is these are some temperament tests that I've taken uh, down over the years and uh, last 20 years. 
And, and I've been told as I take these temperament tests that I'm an extrovert. Ha, what a shocker, right? And that um, I'm intuitive by nature and that I'm a thinker more than I am a feeler and that I like closure. I've been told that I'm very thoughtful about things, that I'm not really a quick start, that I, I like to change, but change has to come in a concerted way. I've been told that I'm more of an influencer in the way that I like to bring change, to relationally influence. And yet when things get really hot in my environment, I tend to want to drive things through, you know, to get through it kind of quickly. I've been told all these things over the years, and so have you, about our personalities. And so what I have found is that many of us, if not all of us, rely very heavily on our personalities to get by. We know how to relate. We know how to persuade. We know how to get what we want with others. We've learned how to harness the good traits of our personalities to win friends and influence those around us. And you don't need to be a David Letterman or a Jay Leno or an Ellen or an Oprah to do this. I mean, just watching American Idol and watching Simon Cowell with all of his cynicism, right, and sarcasm rule his little world tells us that most anybody can harness the strength of their personality to feel good about who they are. My personality gives me a sense of well-being. I rely on it a lot. Well, what's on your list? And then as I continue my mental list of things that I gives me a sense of well-being, I, I think of my job or vocational choice. How about you? Our jobs really give us a sense that, that we're okay, right? And, and that who we are. This is the, the name plaque off my door. Uh, it says Jamie Rasmussen. And I was amazed at how easily, by the way, it came off. I mean, I was like, wow. They obviously did not use any glue when it came to this. It just slid right out. I'm like, oh man, that's not a, that's not a hint. I don't know what is. And, uh, this is my business card. And, uh, and it says Jamie Rasmussen, senior pastor. No, here's the deal. I, I, I try to say, I like to say, cause I can't stand it when pastors get all, you know, authority ridden and all this other stuff and who they are that, you know, I'm, I'm just a normal everyday guy. But the reality is, come on, let's just be honest. Um, I take a lot of stock in my role as a pastor. And I think you take a lot of stock in your role as a doctor, an elder, sports guy. Um, I, I think all of us take a lot of stock in our roles, a homemaker even. In other words, we have roles, we have jobs, we have functions. And when we do them, and when we do them especially well, we tend to get a sense of security from that, don't we? At least I do. And I tend to rely on that. It, it definitely makes my top list. And then as I go down my list, I, I brought a picture here of, of my family. You love your family? I sure love mine. This is a picture of one of our most favorite vacations we took five years ago when we were still living in Cleveland. We came out west here and went to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming and did the Rocky Mountains south of that and did it up in Yellowstone and then Custer State Park and, and South Dakota there. And it was just an incredible trip. And, uh, you know, when I look at pictures like this, or every day when I look at my wife and kids, I realize what a sense of security and well-being my family and my core friendships bring to my life. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that when people go through a divorce or a friendship that goes south, it's such a catastrophic thing in their lives, right? Because we're hardwired to be relational beings and we're hardwired to get a sense of our security from the relationships around us. And so track where we've come from, folks. My list includes things like my personality, my job, my family. And then lastly, I added to my list my education or, or my smarts. You know, again, similar to my personality, I have learned like so many Americans to rule my world with the mental energy that comes from knowledge. 
I mean, our country has just, in a good way, just gone crazy on education over the last 50 years. And so most of us have learned to rationalize, to argue, to make our case, to reason well. And we assure ourselves that everything is going okay in our lives because it's cogent and it's well thought out. I mean, I have a degree here that hangs on my wall, like many of you have a degree. Or even if you don't have a degree, you're street smart. You've learned how to get by in this world by using your brain, using your noggin to get by. And I could add so many other things to my list that maybe appear on yours. I mean, good health, one's reputation in the community, material things, your innate ability and talents. I mean, the list is endless. The point is, what's your list? I mean, what things do you rely on to convince yourself that you're okay, to give yourself a deep sense of your own personhood and security? And once you have this list, folks, once you've done an honest inventory of what your soul truly relies and rests on, then you're ready to put it all together, take the next step, and rise up to Peter's challenge. You ready for this? Because here it is. And that is, it is good as most everything on your list is. I mean, let's face it, it is good that God's given you the personality He has and the job and the material stability and the family and the friends, even your own ingenuity and intelligence. These are good things. They're gifts from God. But get this, none of these are to be the core of what we rely on the most. None of them. None of them appear on Peter's top three of what the righteousness of God has brought to your life. And you can search this book from cover to cover and none of these will be the things that God says you're to rely on the most in your life. And it's tricky. It's not that we're supposed to not rely on them at all. Of course you do. Your family, your gifts, your talents, your friends, you rely on all those things. But not the most. They're not the core of what God wants us to rely on and give us our deepest sense of who we are as individuals and that we are okay. In other words, these are what C.S. Lewis calls really good second place things. Awesome second place things. Things that God wants to have close to on the top of your list, but not on the top of your list. No, God has reserved other things on the top of our list that get this, where Jesus said, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, things that can never be taken away from you. I mean, you know, as tragic as it is, you know, we explore a fallen world over the last couple of weeks. Remember with God and the economy, in, in a fallen world, all these things can be taken away from you. Do you understand that? I mean, I deal with people week in and week out whose marriages are now gone, whose families are, are in tatters, whose education means nothing right now for them in this down economy, whose job has been challenged, whose position, whose role. I mean, I deal with people all the time. I deal with people who go through health problems, you know, in which their intelligence, the way that their brain functions, has, has now diminished greatly. I mean, there's not one thing on our second place list, on the things that we rely on this side of heaven, at least in our initial list, that is, Jesus is right, where, where moths can come in and destroy and where thieves can steal it. That just happens in a fallen world. Because you see, God wants us to rely on His righteous movement in our lives that, that has brought salvation to our souls and faith like that of His original followers and grace and peace that can transcend all of our circumstances. Are you seeing, folks? Here's the point. When you have the guts to make a list of the top four or five things that you are honestly relying on this side of heaven, things like your ingenuity, your smarts, your job, your money, your relationships, and then match it up, 
with Peter's opening words here that talk about salvation, faith, grace, and peace, and then ask yourself, who or what do I rely on the most? You are now faced with one of the most significant decisions in the form of a challenge that you're ever going to find in the entire Bible. And that is, are you going to rely on His righteous movement in your life or your own? That's a challenge that He gives you and I today. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle in its orientation. As many of you know, I, uh, I've spent a little time in the last year checking out some of our mission works in the Middle East. I went to, uh, obviously, Africa and then Egypt, and then just spent some time in Israel. And as I've been there, I've been able to rub shoulders with some, some really, really awesome fellow believers in Egypt and then now in Israel. People that love the Lord Jesus just like you and I do, but are Christians, obviously, in a Middle East sort of way. And I've also been reading some books that they've suggested I read to kind of understand what's happening more in the Middle East and, and, and how different it is from America. And in one of the books I was reading lately, this guy was trying to explain the difference between the Western view of spirituality and God that's even infiltrated the church and what he was raised with in the Middle East. And I found this, though hard-hitting, very, very, very challenging. Listen to what he says. He says, The real problem is that Western theology starts with man as the center of all things and tries to force God into some scheme that we can understand. Then God can be regulated. However, we, as Middle Eastern Christians, have grown up believing that God is the beginning and end of all things. He is central, not an afterthought. He's alive and has His own ways. He says in the West, they want to tame God with their philosophy. Do you understand what he's suggesting here, folks? He's suggesting that what we do in our country is that we start on this level with these things here on this table. In other words, we start with our education, with our temperament, with our roles, our positions, our families. And then with that starting point, we look to God and say, okay, God, what's next? What do you want from me? How can I fit into life? Or more importantly, how can you fit into my life? Have you ever found yourself thinking like that? I find a lot of Christians do. I find I'm tempted to think like that at times. Where I said, they're going, God, here's who I am. I'm bringing all this stuff, all this second place stuff to the table. How can you fit into my life? And that's the way many of us think today. And what he's suggesting, this author, and what I think the Bible affirms, is that maybe we got it backwards. Maybe God is the center of everything. Maybe his glory, his purposes, his plan is the core. And emanating from that are some certain righteous things that he's done for our lives and that we're to revolve our lives around him. Let me write it for you up on the board, maybe in a, in a way that, uh, that, that we can see this. Uh, maybe look at it like this, folks. And that is that um, in the West here, what, what basically we're suggesting is that we put us at the center of everything. I know it's hard to think of Americans doing something like that, but maybe Americans have just put themselves at the center of everything and that this has infiltrated even the way that we view God. And so what we do is we put us with all of our, our education and with our, our families and with all the things that we bring to the table there and our position and, and all who we are, our temperament, and we, we put us at the center. And then what I find we do is we say, you know what, I'd like to have God in my life, so I think I'm going to go to church 
and attend a Bible study. And you know what? I want God in my life because I think that I'm going to um, want to enhance my education and send my kids to a Christian school. And I want God in my life. And, and so I want to learn how to be a better parent. So I'm going to go to a Christian parenting seminar. And I want God in my life. And so I'm going to ask Him to make me really good at my job and to bless me on my job. And I want God in my life. And I'm going to try to learn to get more emotional health and see a Christian counselor. And, and so we attach God to all these things. Are you seeing where this goes? to our lives, and we basically say, okay, God, um, you know, here I am at the center. I sure hope you can fit in in some life-giving and workable ways into my life and that you bless me. And that's the way that most of us think and function. And some of us are so used to functioning this way, we go, well, Jamie, like, what other way is there to function, right? And maybe the challenge becomes this if we're understanding the Scriptures correctly, and that is that what the Bible comes along and says is that God is at the center of it all. God is at the center. And don't miss this. Emanating from Him are things like salvation. Emanating from Him are things like a faith that puts you on equal standing with those around you. Emanating from Him are things like grace. Emanating from Him are things like peace. In other words, God is the center. He has a righteous movement in our lives and emanating from all of that are these things. And what he says is, now you align your lives in and around that. And by the way, the Bible has a lot of other things like love and perseverance and hope and all these other New Testament ethics that we read about. And then it says that emanating from this, even as the concentric circles go out, guess what? You might just find that your kids learn to walk with God. And you might find that there is a biblical view of finances. And you might find that that you're going to be a better worker on your job. And you're going to find that there are parenting tips in the Bible. In other words, you might find that you are a better parent, you are a better worker, you are a better person from doing life God's way. But that's a vastly different paradigm, isn't it, than you at the center trying to fit God. And this is God at the center, and you get on board with His agenda for what He's doing in your life. By the way, that's why theology... And understanding the Bible is so important so that we can change the way that we think. It's so subtle. But one of them leaves you at the end by saying, well, I sure hope God will make my life workable. And the other one leaves you at the end saying, you know what? Whether my life's workable or not, God is at the center of my life. And whether my circumstances are going well or not, I can have grace, I can have peace, I can have faith, I can have hope, I can have love. If I get all those second blessing things or not, It doesn't really matter in the end. I want them. But I'm not revolving my world around those things. You know, about a hundred years after Jesus lived, there was a a scientist by the name of Ptolemy. Many of you have read your history books, Ptolemy. And Ptolemy picked up on Aristotle, and he declared that the earth is the center of the universe, right? Remember that? The earth is the center of the universe. It's called a geocentric view of cosmology. And for 1,400 years, that view reigned in our understanding of the world. And then who was the guy that came along around 1530, remember? It was Copernicus, right? And the Copernicus Revolution came along. And what did Copernicus say? He said, you know what? I don't think y'all have it right. I think, based on my calculations, that the sun seems to be the center, and not the whole universe, but the center of, of our little galaxy, and, and, uh, and we seem to be revolving around it. And it rocked people's understanding. As you know, many people took you know, hundreds of years to get on board with that. And the reality is, could it be that God wants to do a Copernican revolution of our souls? 
that many of us have seen our lives kind of in that first way there, that, that everything sort of revolves around us and that if we can fit God in, good. But if not, then, you know, well, hey. And that maybe God is the center of it all. And that emanating from Him, His righteous movement, are, are the things that our soul needs the most. And that's why we say, who or what do you rely on the most? Rely on His movement in your life, not your own. We need a Copernican revolution of the soul. Folks, I believe this is exactly what Peter was getting at. Look at how, one last time at the first verse there, that he says, he begins this letter by saying this, and again, we're so tempted to drive by this, but you're not going to right now. And that's that he says, Simeon Peter, and I get this, a servant of Jesus Christ. You know what most commentators point out is that that word servant there is way too weak. There's actually another word we should use to translate that, but we don't want to in our politically correct multicultural society. You know what that word is? Slave. That's it. It's the word slave because it's the Greek word doulos that literally means a bond slave. Somebody in absolute servitude, submission, and subservience to another individual. That's what Peter's saying there. And on his first century audience, that did not get lost in them. When he wrote that, they're like, whoa, really? Dude, you're a servant, you're a slave to Jesus Christ and God? He was like, yeah. My life is bound up in him. His glory, his purposes, his power are what my life revolve around. And in a very challenging way, Peter's saying, what's your life revolve around? Because you see, folks, our souls will never be at rest. We're never going to find the peace and the purpose and the value that our lives are looking for that I know we all desperately want until we have a Copernican revolution of our souls. Until we realize at the end of the day, it's not about us, that it's about God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, once again your scriptures come along and even in two opening verses of a relatively obscure New Testament book, a book that most people are not familiar with, um, we find very life-giving stuff. And Father, that's what we hope to find in this series, that as we listen to the words of a man who knew he was going to die soon, life-giving words, that Lord, we would need find life and challenge for our own lives and our own soul. And Father, I can't believe that there's not a one of us here this morning who... Um, in some ways, doesn't resonate with this. I believe that, Lord, because we're all hardwired to know you, to follow you, to love you, to not rest until our souls find peace with you. And so, Lord, when you tell us that our souls are only going to find peace with you by having you as the center of our lives and the direction of our most deepest affections, then, Lord, i got to believe we all are at least drawn to that. So, God, help us to do that. We're going to be surrounded even by the rest of today and tomorrow and this week and this month by lots of second-place things that vie for our attention. May we not reject those. May we utilize those. But God, at the same time, may we deeply, deeply look to you and trust you and realize that emanating from you are the things that our soul needs the most, salvation, faith, grace, and peace, and many other things. May those be the things that captivate our attention and have our deepest allegiances. So we look forward to spending now some time at the communion table in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.